Well, here we are, 72 hours into our time together on retreat. You have undergone quite a rite of passage to get to this 72nd hour. So congratulations on that and acknowledging to yourself that you have brought forth certain paramis that have allowed you to practice in this way. And each hour, each sit, each walking meditation, each moment of the yogi job, you are cultivating, either consciously or unconsciously, or both, these paramis. It's it's quite something in our process of this. One of the things to keep in mind in listening to Dharma talk is that you are making yourself available to the Dharma talk. You don't have to go out and grasp it. So then how does one listen to a Dharma talk? One stays in one's body. One's very interested in what the intuition, the the felt sense of the body is doing in relation to a point that's being made. Oh, that's really stirring this intuitive knowing in me. There's some resonance here. Or noticing, oh, my heart is really touched by this. Like some of the wonderful teachings we've had already. Oh, this really touched my heart. And then to, of course, be aware of how the thinking mind wants to try to grasp it and understand it all at once. And of course, starts comparing and judging and immediately fixing. And when we notice that, go, oh, no, I'll just listen to the talk. I'll stay here in the heart and stay in this belly area in the intuitive body. Skillful ways of listening to a talk. And in that regard, to what end are we doing all of this? Well, from a therapeutic point of view, which isn't the way I hold the Dharma, but from the therapeutic point of view, it's sort of like this cartoon where Humpty Dumpty is on the analyst's couch. And the therapist is very patiently saying to Humpty Dumpty, eventually, I'd like to see you able to put yourself back together. (laughs) In this same way, eventually, we see you being empowered to your own practice. That we are sort of interim servers of your practice, but ultimately the practice belongs to you. It's your practice, and all of our teachings, all of our support in the interviews is to empower this making your practice your own, knowing the truth of your practice, honoring your practice, trusting its own sacredness. It's quite a a serious thing in that way, and therefore one so serious, something so serious should not be treated with too much solemnness because it gets in the way of the the aliveness of the practice. So it's fine to laugh, to smile, to enjoy yourself, to be available to the joy of practice during a talk, during your walking, during the sitting. It's fine to let all of those kinds of happinesses and all the different forms that happiness can take come into the practice. Just a little reminder about that. And so then why do we do all of this? Why do we submit to these long hours of sitting and walking and being so patient? Because there is something calling us to find some form of freedom that our daily life does not provide. My teacher is Ajahn Sumedho, the venerable Ajahn Sumedho, and his teacher uh, was Ajahn Chah, Jack's teacher as well. And 
Ajahn Chah puts this the most succinctly that I've ever heard it stated. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you're not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. It's a pretty fair layout, huh? No beating around the bush about it. No extra elaboration. Just that we have this choice in our lives. And we make this choice over and over again. But as we practice, making the choice becomes easier, becomes more automatic. It becomes the default that, yes, we seek to find that suffering, to be with that suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And the paramis are very, very helpful in that. Very, very helpful. Some of you are already discovering this, and more of you will in the course of our time together in this retreat. So paramis can be understood as qualities of the mind-heart, the bodhicitta, these qualities that, that exist. They can also be understood as the specifics of character, well, this is a person that's got great virtue, Sila being one of the paramis. Or this is a person of great wisdom. We do this in ordinary life. Oh, this is a person that's really generous. Oh, this person's so kind. We recognize these all the time anyway, but we haven't necessarily noticed them as qualities to be cultivated for liberation. And this kind of a retreat where we explore in depth the paramis allows this kind of uh, deeper understanding of them. So, for instance, generosity, which Jack described for us two nights ago, it enables this sharing capacity, this bountifulness of attitude to arise in us as a natural quality. It frees us from the the tyranny of, of the fear of scarcity, or the fear of losing what we have, or that we're not going to have enough. It really does that. I mean, it's like a real antidote to this. This isn't some theoretical thing. The more generous we feel, the less room there is for that fear. And it brings with it this fruit of contentment with what we have. Because if we're not worried about getting more, keeping what we have, having someone take it from us, that there's not going to be enough in the future, then Contentment just naturally arises. And contentment is such a richness, more than any possessions, more than having anything our way. This feeling of contentment, that this is enough, so powerful. And likewise, last night, spring so beautifully took us through this exploration of equanimity. Equanimity enables you to accept what is, even when it's difficult, And it also allows you to accept the truth of Anicca, the truth that everything changes, even those things that you desperately don't want to change, about your own health, about the health of your loved ones, about certain uh, things that you enjoy now. It's all going to change. Everything changes in this aggregated realm. And equanimity allows us to directly know the truth of that, the felt sense of that, to know it in our bones, to know it in our heart, to know it in our intuitive body, not conceptually up in the old coconut. We already know that. But to know it in our heart, in our bellies, that is empowering. 
That allows us to not grasp. So this one power me, so powerful in itself. One way that we can understand the paramis is in terms of a developmental view of them. That is, that we have a basic level of them. This is one of the classic teachings around paramis, that we have a basic level, that there's these intermediary steps of developing the paramis, and then there's this ultimate realization of each of the paramis that comes with full enlightenment. And this developmental approach has things in its favor because we understand, oh, I'm to work at these things, that they respond to development. That if we will take even one of them and start to explore it and say, well, what am I with this? And, and oh, I could use some more development in this area. And in fact, as we bring that intention to it, we are able to develop it. So a very useful model, this developmental approach. Understood from a a spiritual point of view or from, we look at things from our unenlightened uh, mind. We perceive out this way. But if we were perceiving back this way from the enlightened mind, we would, and we have those moments when we get a foretaste of that, then we might from developmentally understand it as the good of suffering. The good of suffering. What in the world would that mean? The good of suffering. It is suffering that awakens us to the need for development. Would you sit here hour after hour rather than in all of this entertaining stimulation that would be available to you if it wasn't for in some form or another the truth of suffering? That truth of suffering, this first noble truth, is the good of suffering. It points to, it prods us, it shows the need for awakening. And the Buddha said that this realm is uh, of human birth is the ideal condition for awakening. It has the necessary balance of the pleasant and the unpleasant, of the capacities for enjoyment, but not too many capacities, that allows us to develop, to awaken, to become all that we can possibly be, to become that which is our heritage, our, our lineage. And so seeing it from this developmental way, we go, oh yes, that's very useful and I can see how on retreat to develop each of these paramis or choose one and develop it. And also in my life, I could take one parami for this next six months and work on it. Very useful, the developmental. A second way of looking at the paramis is to look at it in terms of realization. So it's not developmental, it's awakening to what you already are. You already are generous. You already have instinctive sila. You already possess wisdom. You have patience. You have equanimity. It is your true nature. There's just some dust on, on the mirror that is causing you not to see correctly. I find this at least equally valuable as an understanding. It's non-dual. And it also points to what our own experience is in moments when we're quiet. We do feel our generosity. We do feel our willingness to have renunciation. That it's natural for us. It's not really a stretch. It's just that we're having to find ourselves in order to do this. That's the stretch, is coming back to our true nature. 
and very empowering that way. And then understanding then the development of the paramis is the gradual path of coming back to what we already are. So there's nobody that has to go anywhere and there's nowhere to go, but rather to come back to ourselves, to just arrive where we already are. Very inspiring at times. The third way that you can, or a third way, that you can understand this, the paramis and our working with them this week, is that it is an offering. That each time you're generous is an offering. That each time that you are uh, coming to, you meet something with wisdom, it is an offering. Each time you meet the moment with equanimity is an offering. Each time that you are able to renounce something to to give up some indulgence that isn't really needed, that would not be wholesome, do something that's not skillful. It's an offering. It's an offering. The offering is always, as I would understand it, as best I am able, I make this offering. What is it we're offering to? To our own Buddha nature? To our interdependence? To a surrender? of our grasping mind that allows us to be on the Eightfold Path. This offering is part of the surrender. The more we develop the paramis, the more we can surrender and the more we can be on the Eightfold Path. The path. And there's a real mystical aspect to this. Again, looking from enlightenment back, but not looking this way where it seems like so much work to be done. But from the other way, it's like, oh... It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful that we, just as we are, would make these offerings. These offerings of patience, these offerings of wisdom, these offerings of renunciation, of sila, of generosity, of energy. We give our energy to this. It's beautiful to offer. Do you even think of yourself as having this capability of offering? You do. You support one another throughout the day in this practice. That's an offering. You invoke, you consciously or unconsciously are utilizing these paramis to support in this way. It is an offering. It is an offering to others, but also an offering to yourself because there's not really a separation there. The interdependence works both ways. As you give to others, you're giving to yourself. It requires stepping out. Stepping out from this linear kind of uh, everything separate and there's this follows by this, followed by this, followed by this, into a wholeness of experience. A wholeness of experience. But you already know this wholeness of experience. So just being available for this wholeness of experience to arise. As we listen to all of these talks on the paramis, yes, this is part of my offering to life. I am a participant in life and I already make these offerings. As my understanding deepens, my offering can be more full, can be more free, and can have an ever more wholesome quality to it because I have more understanding. Thus I practice, thus I practice. When um, uh, 
I was editor-in-chief of Esquire magazine for seven years in the late 70s and uh, most of the 1980s. And uh, one of my uh, things that I would be requested to do would be to speak to the magazine interns. This was a program, I don't know if they still do it or not, but in those years, and they had done it for decades, they would bring in interns to New York City uh, to work on different magazines, and all the different magazines uh, would uh, participate in this program. And so you could, you might be living in Des Moines or in L.A. or, or Austin, and for various reasons, as a college student, you were selected to be an intern at one of the magazines. So you might be at Esquire, or Newsweek, or Vogue, or it, it varied. As in, there was a whole process for assigning people to these different magazines. And as part of that program, once a month, no, once a week, they would uh, meet this rather large group of, of young people. They would meet, and there would be some sort of instruction about journalism and so forth. And my role in this program was that I was the last voice that they heard before the program ended. And what I would do as the last voice is I would talk to them about their choices. And I would start by saying, I'm going to talk about choices you will have when you go into the working world, and I will be the last person that ever mentions these choices to you. You have the choice of of being honest or not honest. You have the choice of cutting corners or not cutting corners. Many people will try to bribe you in many ways. You will have many temptations to abuse power, and on and on and on. And um, this would be startling because everyone else had talked about how to edit a manuscript or how to solicit a writer or all of this, about the economics of the magazine business. And where was this guy coming from? And there would be a few minutes of, like, disorientation. And I'd let it be there because I wanted to really get their attention. I was already committed to a spiritual path. During the first part of my years there, I was a Raja Yogi, which I practiced very uh, strongly, had a very intense practice. And then in the last years that I was there, I had switched to Vipassana practice as my primary practice, not abandoning the other, but with with Vipassana being my primary practice. I didn't know of the paramis, but in retrospect, what I was doing was talking about the paramis. And the reason I cared so much is that as I had moved through the world from starting my first magazine, uh, really still in college, to that point as I was dismayed by the cynicism of the world. I was dismayed by the lack of reflection in the world. I didn't understand why it was that way. I didn't see why it had to be that way. I wasn't that way, and I could do okay. I lost some things because I didn't play certain games. Once this man sat at the dinner table and basically said, I want you to bribe me. And he he sort of named what he would accept. And this was was a multi-million dollars worth of advertising. Not even a second's hesitation of that. No interest in it. And all of these different kinds of ways that all these things come up. The kindness that we treat people at work are not kindness. 
All of these things that come in our work life, these are all, these are the paramis manifest in daily life. And I, in reflection later, realized that I was already understanding how important these, what we would call character traits, can be in terms of, the, uh, of a life that's free, a life that's free. And so it's no different for us now. We're all still interns in a certain way, right? Whether we're, t- we're 25 or 75, we're still trying to make our way. And these paramis allow this making our way. They allow this freedom. They are the empowerments that come from practice. Tonight, I want to focus on two paramis uh, together because they're such a perfect fit. And in a way, they're joined at the hip. You really can't do very well with one without the other. And the first of these two that I want to focus on is patience, this parami of patience. And the second is the parami that's what's traditionally referred to as resolve or determination, but which you will hear me speak of tonight mostly as persistence. I choose the word persistence over this resolve or determination as the primary word because I find for myself the activeness of persistence is more what I mean in my own cultivation of it. Because this determination can have a be... I've met a lot of people who've reported how determined they were but they sure did not have very much persistence in that determination. There wasn't any, there wasn't an active part to it. They'd say, I'm determined, and I would really believe them in a way, because I could feel how much they, they identified with that determination, both in daily life and in spiritual practice. But there wasn't any doing. Nothing was showing up out there. And so uh, this persistence, you, you know, you're knocking on the door, you get knocked off, you come back. That's what I mean by persistence. It is a determination, but it's an active determination. An active determination. So patience and persistence. Patience and persistence. Again, uh, to uh, quote uh, from uh, my elders, with the Venerable Sumedho has a wonderful uh, piece of advice for us in our practice. Very wonderful piece of advice. He calls it the practice of letting go. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. Had any of that on this retreat? You, you simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, let go. Rather than trying to develop this practice and then develop that practice and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and then the Madhyamakaya and then the Prajnaparamita and then get ordination, the Hinayana, Mahayana and Vajrayana and then write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. Let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) 
So patience and persistence allow us to let go. It takes patience and persistence to let go because we have to let go over and over again because we pick it right back up. We grab it again, we grab it again, we grab it again. So patience and persistence allows us to let go. And letting go enables, empowers the cultivation of patience and persistence. So it works both ways. Patience is forbearance under stress, under disappointment, under anxiety, under urgency of pressure, of disappointment, of defeat, confusion, of being lost. Being patient with the difficult. Being patient with the difficult. Patience is not passive. It's not being a long-suffering type. That is not patience, this long-suffering. It's disguised as patience, but it's really a kind of defeat or running away, avoidance. So it's not a passive submitting, but rather it's active, energetic, sustaining, a kind of endurance that is a sustaining endurance that can be there time and time and time and time again. It is this patience that does allow us to start over. And in this practice, as you've seen in these 72 hours, you have to start over so many, 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 many times. We all do. We have to start over. As we develop more patience, it becomes uh, uh, more and more effortless to start over. We don't mind it anymore because we've developed this new relationship with getting lost, with getting distracted. We still get distracted, still get lost. But okay, lost, start over, start over. And then, slowly but surely, as we're more relaxed about getting lost, we eventually start getting lost less. Because our very anxiety about getting lost, of getting caught, adds to the getting caught, getting lost. So patience is so useful in that way. Patience allows us to be with what's unpleasant. It allows us to even be patient with restlessness. It doesn't mind the fact that we fail, that we intend to be awake in this moment and we're not. It's okay. It's okay. Patience as is true with every one of the paramis. And by the end of this retreat, you will get this, if nothing else, through osmosis. <laughs> Patience and all of the paramis start to infuse one another. So there's a, a generous attitude helps patience. Sila helps patience. They, uh, they, uh, the wisdom helps patience. They all together help with patience. And each, each, of the, each of the paramis help each other. And in that sense, if you go the other way, you could take any one of them and uh, as you cultivate it, you could create, like, like in a holograph, you could see all of the others being present. So it's very interesting in that way. And that's very encouraging because we need all the help we can get. <laughs> uh, Thomas Merton uh, has a famous quote that, that begins with, do not depend on results. <laughs> So patience does not depend on results. Patience is dealing with what is. The Buddha said, 
that patience is the highest virtue. So well worth our consideration, well worth recognizing all of the patience that we already have. Recognizing how many times in a given sit that you're patient with yourself, waking up to it. So this is patience, one of these twins joined at the hip. So if patience is the yin of practice, then persistence or determination is the yawn of practice. And we need these two together. Persistence is a feeling of commitment. It's unswerving. You just start again because you're, you're persevering. You're, just, you're determined. You just keep going. You get knocked off, you come back. Knocked off, come back. You become so powerful when you develop this. Because as long as you're alive, you're going to keep going. That's pretty formidable in all circumstances. Persistence is so powerful as we learn how to develop it. It manifests as a kind of tenacity. It can stay with something. It's willing to meet resistance. It doesn't mind the resistance because it's not, it's not based on having no resistance. It, then you wouldn't need it if there were no resistance. The very existence of resistance empowers, awakens, cultivates the persistence. So you gain the strength of persistence in in the dance of the resistance. The resistance of the mind staying steady, the resistance of the heart opening to the metta. Persistence is fine with that. It just gets a good workout in that way. Wisdom tells us, this parami of wisdom tells us what's our important goals, what really matters. Persistence, this determined persistence, takes us towards those goals. Despite everything that comes up, takes us towards it. This uh, determination or persistence is not a form of attachment or grasping. This is really an important point because I've seen lots of people in practice go through years of suffering about this. They will, uh, they will really be determined to be able to uh, have a lot of concentration or they will really be determined to uh, have the meta work better or to really be mindful in a way they're not mindful where they can keep their mindfulness going from moment to moment with kind of continuity. But the way they're holding it, the way they're perceiving it is not as practice but as a result. I will be concentrated. Can you feel the grasping in that? I will be concentrated. But rather than that, I'm determined to practice concentration. I'm determined to practice mindfulness. The results at any given time are larger than me and larger than I can control. So I accept the fact that I am not in control of the outcome. So therefore, it would be illogical, it would be, it would be a kind of absurdity to grasp for the outcome. But I can, as a value, have this persistence. In the Eightfold Path, there, the second, the Samasamkapa is the second of the Eightfold Path, this wise intention. Wise intention is what meets each moment. Right now, intention right now. You've got this goal, but 
on this step of the path, are you going towards the goal or not going towards the goal? Are you creating suffering or not creating suffering in this moment? Are you kind in this moment or not? Are you awake in this moment or not? Are you being with the truth of how things are in this moment or not? That intention of this moment is where the, is where the determination, the persistence is. It's, it's persistent because this is my value. It's my value in this moment because this is the goal, so I intend to move towards my goal with skillful means in this very moment. You start to see how powerful that is if you organize that way. And you start to notice now in these next few days, well, do I get into a kind of conceptual grasping of my goal? Many times in my Sunday Sangha or when I'm teaching other groups of people, including I, I, the other thing I do is work with leaders in various ways. And many times I've had uh, some leader, particularly entrepreneur types, stand up and say, I've got to be attached to my goals. Otherwise, I wouldn't make my payroll and people you know, wouldn't get the money to pay their mortgages and feed their children and so forth. I mean, I mean they'd really be strong in front of a lot of people. And I say, maybe. Maybe that's true, but it's not my experience. I do not experience that grasping brings you to a goal, that that attachment to the goal is what really empowers. It's your value. It's what you care about that really empowers. When you grasp towards a goal, you get, you get narrow in your vision, and you're less likely to be able to see clearly, less likely to include all the factors that are, are determining getting to your goal, and likewise, your intuition gets blocked, your mind's fuzzy. And the same is true in our practice. If we get all determined, we get over there someplace that we're not, and we're, we're all over here determined to get somewhere, that's not where we are. No, we're back here. We have to start where we are. If you're sitting on this side of the room, and I ask you to leave the hall from that side of the room, It'd be a little difficult to get started, wouldn't it? And you on this side of the room, if I say, oh, leave from this side of the hall, you're not over there. Yet we will in our practice make this mistake. We will get fixated on uh, 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 demanding that things be a certain way. But they're not that way. Thus this importance of knowing how things are. Oh, this moment's like this. The same's true in daily life and on retreat, starting where we are. We always start where we are. And this deep acceptance of starting where we are, that's where the patient comes in. And then this persistence towards our goal, so empowering in our practice. In my experience of students, This resolve or this determination or this persistence is far more challenging to get properly balanced than is patience and really any of the other paramis. It's, it's hard to know. You know, the Buddha said, not too tight, not too loose in practice. It's a, it's a tricky balance. And many of you have reported that in your interviews and Big things can come up, like the gentleman with the grief the other day, and or even like with the the the, the young lady today with with this sense of peace of mind. These big things can come up, and then 
What do we do in terms of persistence when something big has come up like this? What are we persisting towards and how do we go about working with this? And it can get really confusing. That's why we need patience. Because we don't know yet how to work with it. We may well work with it in a way that's not so skillful, first of all. That's okay. That's okay. How are we going to learn how to do it more wisely? By doing it unskillfully, by being unwise. The mistakes are part of the learning. The beautiful thing about mistakes is when we, when we really stay present for the mistake, it's a one-off. Whoa, don't want to do that again. We get so much value from being unskillful in a moment. If we can stay present, this persistence allows us to do that. We're willing to take our mistakes because we're trusting our persistence. We're trusting our commitment to our own practice. Persistence requires a kind of faith. Otherwise, when we run into uh, the inevitable defeats, the inevitable wrong turns, the inevitable bad sits, the days when our mind's possessed with fantasy and we can't stop fantasizing, or we're planning, we're planning that conversation we're going to have, this is about the hundredth time on the retreat that you're planning that conversation (laughs) yet again. You just want to stop, you know, you just want to stop. And and so it it requires this this willingness to, to stay present. And where does that willingness come from? Where does the persistence come from but faith? We are inspired by Dharma talks. We're inspired by uh, uh, seeing other people practice. We're inspired by one another's practice. It really matters that we're practicing together. 99% of us are doing better in a retreat than if we were on our own because we're, we're borrowing the determination, the persistence of one another. That's why it's so great to sit in the hall together. As one's practice matures, one gains more independence from that. But a long ways, it's really vital and it's never unworthy, this, this uh, community sharing of creating a community persistence in this way. Hearing the Dharma talk awakens in us the possibility, but the practice the faith that comes from our actual practice is the, the biggest source of persistence. It requires that we be mindful, that we notice, oh yes, there is some peace in this sit. I, I, I did have a moment of kindness towards myself. Uh, uh, two people already in interviews uh, have talked about seeing some possibility in relation to one of the paramis and going, oh, you know, I could actually... I can imagine myself doing that. I personally find this to be the great value of devoting an entire treat to the paramis is that it awakens in us this, uh, this possibility in ourselves. It's a, a very good balancing to some of the other uh, ways that we practice. When we see that, it gives us a moment of faith. It gives us a kind of faith. I refer to that moment as the imaginative possible. The imaginative possible is that moment when we see, oh no, it's, it's possible, it definitely is possible that someone would uh, develop less clinging 
or that there could be more generosity or that there could be letting go. Letting go is a definite possibility. And then going that next step and going, I could let go. I could not cling in this area. Oh, here's this story that I've carried around like this, this, you know, cross on my back, this carried it in this sack or then beat myself with this. This is my story of my unskillful act or this is my story of this, this terrible thing that happened to me. We've carried it around. We've seen the world through the eyes of this terrible thing. And then we have this moment we realize, I don't have to be determined by this. I don't have to see the world from this perspective anymore. It was an awful thing that happened to me. That was something unskillful I did. I own that. But I do not have to see the world that way. It does not have to define me. It will always characterize. It will color my existence because it was part of what's true. But it does not have to determine anything. That moment of seeing that, that imaginative possible, when you know that it's possible, not guaranteed, this is so important also. You do not need a guarantee. It's easy to get confused about that. Just that sense of it may be possible. That's faith enough. And from that faith, we can be persistent. We can be inspired in so many ways. Nature can inspire us. Uh, the rain may have inspired us. The sun's going to come out in the next few days and it's going to be beautiful here. This land, the quiet of the land, the wild animals we'll be seeing, this can inspire us. Thinking about our loved ones can inspire us. The gratitude practice we do, the loving kindness practice can inspire us. Many different ways to be inspired. But in each of those ways, there's some point when we actually start touching our own Buddha nature. And that moment of touching that, that's that moment of, of, of a kind of uh, a verified faith. And so to really appreciate that, it may be so small and so fleeting. So uh, be alert to it. Be interested in it. I refer to patience and persistence as joined at the hip. And I do so because they so support each other. Patience softens and calms persistence. That yin, oh, it's okay to that persistence because persistence can get all agitated and get faster and faster, right? You notice that in your sit. Oh, no, it's okay, it's okay. So this yin of patience uh, calms the the. the um, this uh, can-do energy of persistence. It also relieves and protects the nervous system because too much persistence exhausts us. And we want to balance this in our, our practice. It's tricky balance, as I said before. Patience allows us to not get upset with ourselves when persistence is not yielding any progress. Oh, it's not supposed to be yielding progress. It's just supposed to be being persistent. Progress is beyond my control. When causes and conditions are right, progress will occur. It takes patience to know that. Patience allows you to tolerate how hard and slow spiritual development can be at times. There is an external aspect of patience where we are patient with others, we're patient with external circumstances. There's an internal patience where we're patient with ourselves. You may be uh, uh, 
more skilled at one than the other. So you can be interested as, oh, how am I with my external patients? How am I with my internal patients? It is fine to be, it's skillful means to be patiently impatient. So you're very impatient. You're sitting there and you can't wait for the bell ring. Why don't they ring that bell? And if for heaven forbid that we get over the minute, right? Like happened tonight. Oh, they didn't ring the bell on time. What is wrong here? Oh, and that, so be patient with that impatience. It's just coming out of causes and conditions. It's okay to be impatient. You can be very patient with impatience. When you are, marvelous things happen. And I'll leave it at that. On the other hand, be a little cautious about being impatiently patient. Fine to be patiently impatient, but being impatiently patient, little tricky. Because we're doing the form of patient. Oh, here I am being patient. I wish the bell would ring, but I'm, I'm being patient. I'm so patient. Oh, here I am in lunch line. That person is taking so long to get the salad on the plate. Oh, but here I am being patient with it. <laughs> might be true. Might be true. But we, if we look closely, oftentimes we see we're doing the form, but there's no core to it. We're not actually touching patience. We're doing the form of patience. We're doing the conceptual version up in the old coconut once again. But we're not actually connecting to what would be this parmi of patience. You can look for yourself and see. So that's the caution one way. The caution the other way is that many times you have to fake it till you can actually make it. That's okay too. Well, here I'm going. I'm practicing being patient. I'm not impatient at all. That's okay. You're just connecting to your intention. But you're not fooling yourself. You're not believing your own press clippings. Determination likewise supports patience. This is why it's a mutually beneficial thing. With, with patience, we, with, with, uh, patience without persistence never gets there. And you know people like this. They're very patient and all this, but they don't ever accomplish anything in their lives, you know? And uh, we certainly see this in practice. People are, are being so patient with themselves that they're not applying themselves. They're too patient. They're too laid back. They're oftentimes going into a kind of spaciness or rationalization. It, without persistence, we don't get there. We can indeed become very long-suffering when we have patience without persistence. We can uh, uh, start developing unbelievable acts of compromising and rationalization because of this. So uh, we, uh, patience needs the persistence to bring it into balance. But that's not so hard to do in that way. It's, it's much easier to get, in my experience, to get patience in balance than it is persistence, as I mentioned earlier. So in terms of if I were going to have you look at something over the next 24 hours, is to notice when you have a lot of determination, but you don't have that much patience. You will find that it drains your energy, 
So you're practicing, but there's not this patient. So you keep coming back to the breath, or we've opened to emotions, but you're not really being mindful of the emotions. You're getting reactive and lost in them, not doing the suggestions that Mark had this morning with working with emotions. And it will drain our energy. It was was very easily seeable. It creates bad timing. We don't. We we lose our sense of timing when we're just being persistent, because it's like we've only got the on button. But there's times when you know you need to get up and take a walk, or just just sit there and let your mind drift, because you need the rest. You need the rest. You're 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 training your frustration. You're not actually training your practice at that point. And I, I, for many years, I practiced Aikido quite intensely. And this was one of the things that, uh, that we were taught over and over again, that when you're practicing a, a particular technique, at the point that what you're doing is getting frustrated with the technique, then you're not actually practicing the technique. You're practicing being frustrated. You're practicing your defeat. So get off the mat. Just bow off the mat and go sit down and wait for the next technique to come up. I found that to be quite true in Aikido, and I find it to be quite true in practice. And many times in our interviews, we will be urging you to consider various ways that will balance your practice so that you don't uh, do this to yourself. Uh, Persistence without patience can start to be violent. You can be judgmental towards yourself. You can be jerking your mind back to the breath in a way that you know, if, if you were a child and you were being jerked around like that, you certainly wouldn't want to cooperate. And yet you do this to your mind without noticing it because you're being persistent, but you don't have this sense of patience. We've introduced this idea of pausing and all to help counter that. Persistence without patience also distorts perception because we're just trying to see the end, see the end, and it, it throws us off in this way. And so we need both. There's, um, um, I've, I've been teaching the paramis quite a bit in this last 12-month period of time uh, because I realized that uh, in the places I teach that we haven't really done this this much recently in these recent years. And so I got interested in doing this. And so I've had quite a bit of experience in various retreat situations with this. So I've had a lot of interview situations uh, come up. And uh, one of the interview questions that comes up, well, okay, uh, I want to develop patience, uh, but don't I need to be persistent about developing patience? And I'll go, yes. Well, I want to be more persistent, but don't I need to have a lot of patience in order to develop persistence? And I'll go, yes. Well, then which comes first, and how do we do this, and how do I go about this? And there's a cartoon that captures this. There's the chicken and the egg are talking to one another. And the egg, in a very cheerful voice, says, well, let's stop arguing. We're both here now. (laughs) You've already got patience. You've already got persistence. They are both here now. You don't have to say, oh, I need more patience to develop more persistence, or I need more persistence to develop more patience. You can see, oh, What's called for in this situation? Wow, in this sit, I'm not being very patient with myself. Oh, I invite the arising of more patience. Oh, my mind is drifting. I'm really being lazy in my practice. I'm distracted. I'm not really applying. I haven't ever gotten started. Here I am 
20 minutes into this sit, and I've not really been with my breath at all. I've never collected and unified the mind to start practicing however I'm going to practice. Also, there needs to be some persistence here. I, may, I invite persistence to arise. May there be some persistence. Be gentle with it. This relaxed attention around it. They will come as we make this request over and over again. As our interest comes, these will come. A little rule of thumb for you about this. Energy follows attention. Now, later on in another talk, we'll be talking about energy, but energy follows attention. So the energy for patience, the energy for persistence comes from being mindful of that which we want to develop because we're paying attention to it. Relaxed attention, please. Relaxed attention. Not tight attention. Not demanding attention. Relaxed, spacious attention. That's so powerful when it's relaxed because it doesn't get worn out. It doesn't get frustrated. This is just what you're about. There you are in the body, even in this talk. There you are, paying attention to the intuition, paying attention to the heart. Oh, so I'm practicing. But this, this, this spacious mind that then allows us to meet the moment with these qualities of patience and persistence because we're interested in them. In living our values, this, uh, the, the, this uh, first of the Eightfold Path, this wise understanding, and the second of the uh, wise intention, patience allows us to make mistakes, to forgive ourselves, Persistence allows us to try again to meet the resistance. So patience allows us to be what is. Persistence meets the resistance in what is, if that helps you understand these two. When I was um, giving my advice to those young people, I gave the advice from my own experience base, from my own set of values. I had tried my practice had been, and I would remind myself of the practice each day, going up to the 32nd floor at 2 Park Avenue, I would chant to myself my values. I was really serious about all of this. And so I was speaking from my own heart's intention about the importance of all of this in daily life, certainly here on retreat. But I did not once think, wow, am I the perfection of all of these values. I understood that I had made mistakes, some of which I was painfully aware of, some of which I was not aware of, but that I knew sooner or later would reveal themselves as mistakes. This relaxed attitude, this not a demand that we be more than we are, is so empowering. I don't know how to uh, really meet the challenge of a spiritual practice without this relaxed attitude. We burn ourselves out otherwise. We find ourselves unacceptable. And this is the tricky part of this faith in terms of persistence and why we need so much patience. Because one of the things that's such a block for so many of us is some inner judgment some either overt or covert feeling of unworthiness. Not me. I'm not good enough. It is the final impairment to the, the uh, sense of the imaginative possible. The Buddha faced this. 
he faced this the night of his enlightenment when Mara appeared, and he had to he had to uh, uh, sit there first with these uh, the armies attacking him, and all of their arrows turned into flowers. That was that was his uh, that was his his uh, ability to persist. And then when his uh, then Mara tempted with all of this sensual pleasure, and that was his ability to have sila, to have renunciation, to not indulge in the in the pleasures of the world as the meaning of life. But then, very cleverly, very very cleverly, Mara said, "Who are you?" to think that your freedom is worthy of this. You could be spending your time helping others. I'm offering you power in ways that would allow you with that power to help others. You think your own liberation is this important? Are you so much better than others? What about all these people that have suffered so much more than you? Why do you deserve this? Very effective, huh? Would you stand up to that? Shaky about it for myself. Very tough, very tough. And in the, the statue of the Buddha, the Buddha's answer was touching Mother Earth and saying, with Mother Earth as my witness, because I am here, I am inherently worthy of this. I am inherently. It is, it is your birthright. It is not something earned. It's a very different orientation than maybe the orientation of of uh, traditions you've been part of, that you are inherently worthwhile, that your Buddha nature is already. And from this worthiness, we then can move forward in our practice. When we don't feel worthwhile, then we can't have patience because we're not worthy of patience. We can't have persistence because we're not worthy of persistence. And we may not even notice that that's in the field of the experience. So I'm inviting you in these next few days to notice this. The metta is very useful for helping you connect to this. When we perceive ourselves this way, it is an error in perception. It's an error in perception. We are deluded. It's the deluded mind that thinks this. But the deluded mind has its own life. So it, it's going to be diluted till it's not. So to be patient and persistent, even with this delusion of our not being worthy, it becomes a wholeness of the experience in that way. I want to end with um, uh, 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 people make this joke about the four quartets being my Bible. And to some degree it's true that it is my Bible. It's been, uh, in my view, uh, the four quartets, along with the Divine Comedy, uh, are maybe the two most important uh, spiritual uh, uh, artistic endeavors in the Western uh, canon. Um, non non spiritual, non non religious tracks, but just artistic tracks that were created. So I want to end with this uh, one piece from the four quartets that has to do with how we sit. Uh, uh, T.S. Eliot will use this word wait or waiting. When you hear wait, imagine sit. When you hear waiting, imagine sitting. And it, uh, this piece captures for me this uh, balance, this empowered balance 
of patience and persistence from the side of the awakened mind that when we dwell in this patience and persistence in this way, when we just sit, how truly empowered we become long before we necessarily know that we are this way. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, the stillness the dancing. Remembering last night when uh, the beautiful poem that Spring read us about the darkness and this light, the light of the darkness. When we're sitting, if we sit with this beginner's mind, this don't know mind, I'm just available. It is so empowering. It is so empowering. We don't have to be on top of it. We don't have to be doing it well. We're willing to show up with whatever is. We have this patience. We have this persistence. I will sit here as long as I need to sit here. Wow. And I have the patience that allows me to do that. Wow. I don't need to have a conceptualization of it. I'm doing the thing itself. So let's do that for a moment. Close our eyes. So first tuning in, feeling the body. What's true in the belly? What's true in this intuitive body? What's true in the heart? Not needing the heart to be other than it is. And then turn to the head center and notice what thoughts you're having in words or images. And now for the next 15 seconds, just stop all thought, just sit. So we can sit for one breath, one half breath. We can just be. We can invite the mind to be all of these different ways, including to be without thought. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, 
But the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the dancing. Whisper of running streams and winter lightning, the wild thyme unseen, and the wild strawberry, the laughter in the garden, echoed ecstasy, not lost, but requiring, pointing to the agony of death and birth. Thank you for your very kind attention. I appreciated your staying with me as we covered so much material, some of it 